Okay, hello and welcome to episode 51 of Dano Says So, brought to you by Trust Records as part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. This is the first episode we've run of the show since June 20th, almost five months. And my hope is that simply by virtue of his vocation and the life he's lived, today's guest might break up the rhythm we've sort of established here and come at us from sort of a mindset and a life a life view that is completely outside my own understanding, which would be exciting. Jim McSorley, I know him as Nako Nolan, is a veteran of both the New York and Los Angeles Police Departments. He's worked as a beat cop. He's worked in plain clothes. He's worked vice, crash, the career criminals unit. He was part of a joint FBI task force against terrorism. He currently holds the rank of detective supervisor for the LAPD. These things, in and of themselves, make him an exciting get. Marco Nolan, thank you for doing this. It's my pleasure, Dano. I, I loved when I read that invite. It really got me excited. So this is uh, really, really looking forward to this outside of my norm. So cool. very cool. Thank you. Have we crossed paths since the pandemic started, or would it be like the last? Or would it be like the last China Club shows before that? <laughs> I think it might have been a uh, Circle Jerks, right up in ah, at the, yeah, at the, at the Palladium. You're right. No, not not the oh, Palladium. Oh no, no, um, Pappy and Aries. Uh, yes, yes. All right. Okay. Well, right off the bat, I'm off my notes. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> it's all okay. good. You know, when I was reading that bio, and it shows a lot of different mileage in what I perceive as being a lot of heavy, heavy work, the one thing that jumped out at me and that I left out is the thing I want to ask you about first, and that's that in your bio, I read about time in a special victims unit and investigating crimes against children. What all did that entail? That entailed uh, we were uh, in charge of investigating physical abuse and sexual abuse against juveniles, so it's uh, below 18. And so it's homicide on down. So from killing your kid to slapping them around to raping them. So it was like what it sounds horrendous, probably one of the most rewarding and worst assignments I've ever had due to the fact that dealing with the criminal justice system and rape victims. I mean, it's, it's been in the zeitgeist, you know, for during this whole Me Too era, it's just um, become, come across a lot of resistance in the criminal justice field. It's the, the preponderance of the evidence to get a conviction is very, very high. As we know, victims of sexual assault, it's probably, it's, it's almost worse than murder. Because if you're murdered, you don't know. You know you're mm-hmm. already dead. When you're a victim of abuse, especially by at the hands of a family member, and I, I mean, you take that to the grave. That's just on, on your mind, I'm sure, every day. And it just affects you. And it just has a very huge lift mentally. I mean, it's it's crushing to hear, to have to, to have to have interviewed kids that were, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old being uh, brutalized by family members. It, it was the worst crime imaginable. I mean, it's, there's a reason why pedophiles are targeted in prison. It's like, okay, you got it. You're in a prison. Everyone's done dirt, but everyone knows even in the criminal, in the, in the criminal underworld, you don't mess with kids. You don't mess with someone's family. And if you do, you're going to pay the price while you're inside prison. I don't condone the death penalty or, you know, street justice per se. I mean, I do it, I don't, but I understand you know, why they targeted was they, they truly are the worst of the worst. How do you preserve any kind of emotional remove or any kind of objective distance when you're investigating things? Uh, you really don't. I mean, you, you take it to heart every day, every day with a heartbreak. And when you go home, 
you try to distance yourself. I mean, but you're really fooling yourself. It's, 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 you're not, I mean, I had a, I had a very limited tour and that assignment because, because of that, it was, yeah. it was very frustrating to have the, the, the main reason was you to have these kids, you know, break down and, and, and open up their heart and tell you exactly what happened and to take that to the district attorney's office and not have them prosecute that, that case to go back to the kid and tell them that this person that brutalized them is not going to be convicted of this. I mean, it was, it was horrendous. I, I couldn't do it for very long. The people that do it day in and day out for many years, my hat goes off to them. It's just very, very frustrating assignment. But when we did get someone and uh, they did, you know, multiple decades, extremely rewarding, but still, it's not like you're giving yourself high fives. The damage is done. I mean, you're just glad that hopefully, you know, that this person's never going to see the light of day. But there's no, there's no winners in that in that assignment, really. It seems to me like it would be almost impossible to avoid a really unique cocktail of heartbreak and rage. I mean, congratulations on making it through. Yeah, yeah, the rage, the rage was definitely there. Probably manifested itself in drinking and other self-destructive behaviors that, uh, thankfully, in the past. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's it was horrendous time in my my career. But I met, I, thankfully, the squad I was working with, the guys. I mean, when we weren't working, you know, just you know, actively, you know, in in the midst of an investigative assignment, uh, the guys itself. Oh my God, I had a great squad. We bust each other's balls nonstop. We laughed. Um, we had a tight crew, and I met some. I worked with some phenomenal guys, and it, it, that that regard was awesome. And uh, the people, the people around you make it worthwhile. So I had a great, great squad of people. So yeah, that as I'm thinking back at that, you know, I kind of, as like a dark period of my career, I kind of put in a closet. But thinking back, I met some wonderful people and dedicated, really dedicated people that I just uh, have the utmost respect for. I knew you socially before I knew you were in law enforcement. In fact, it kind of caught me off guard when I found that out. And it challenged some of my perceptions and prejudices about mm-hmm. the field. That said, you started off as a beat cop, as everyone does, correct? It's academy, and then yep. it's and then it, and then it's working a beat. So at that point, it's not into this heavy, heavy investigative work, and a lot of what I perceive is really traumatic work. And it's more of a brave new world. What about your upbringing, and what about your life attracted you to the field? You know, it's in uh, Dan. It's in it's in the lineage. I mean, uh, you know, being uh, an Irish American yourself, we're a protective clan. We're there mm-hmm. to fight. Or break up fights, you know, where they had to create chaos or restore order. And, you know, it kind of depends on what side you're on. You know, it's a it's a rebel lineage. So with that said, it's it's kind of strange that there's a lot of rebels that are that find their way into either the armed forces or law enforcement or something in the first responder thing. Mm-hmm. So we we walk the line. And but then while we're in it, it's kind of a dichotomy that we were kind of a disruptive force at the same time and want to work outside those lines. It's a it's a real yin and yang. So I come from a long line of uh, veterans where I was taught that you're either part of the problem or you're part of the solution. So I wanted to be a part of the solution and uh, bring order to chaos and didn't like seeing my, you know, the places where I lived uh, deteriorating and de- being destabilized by whatever means that was at the time. So I was taught, take it to them. And uh, so police work as a great tribal existence, kind of like being in a band. I was in a band too when I was in my teens and you got a group of guys and uh, you're having fun at the same time. Like I mentioned, other squad, you're doing great work and at the same time you're outdoors and you're doing work that really means something you're getting paid a decent wage so 
I was like, I'm in. This is this, this is what I was meant to be. I was always a protector of of my of my crew growing up, and I just translated into the profession I'm, I'm in. I've always been in small, specialized units with a good group of guys that are hard nosed and um, utmost professionals that take their craft very seriously. So this line of work, I don't know if it, you pick it or it picks you, but it's just in the blood for me. There's two things I hear there that have me scratching my head and not to the positive or the negative, but wow, I've got to wrap my brain around. And is that the last thing I would have ever expected you to tell me is that it correlates directly to your rebellious nature or to your rebellious youth. I mean, you can understand why that maybe wouldn't strike me as linear. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I believe you, but I did not see that coming. So that's interesting. It makes me think for you, and you don't strike me as someone who's particularly vulnerable to the opinion of others, but we know each other through, you know, these big times and small, small rooms in a very specific culture. Has it been difficult at any point in your life that what you do for a living is almost uniformly looked on negatively in that culture? Probably in my 20s, you know, when you know, you're kind of a um, little bit more secure and you're trying to find your place in life and, you know, your identity and, you know, you're still honing yourself. But through the years, no, not really. I mean, I, I chalked that up to uh, my dad. He, he had uh, he had a long group of friends from all walks of life. You know, priests, uh, punks, uh, hell's angels, and uh, everything in between there. So I, I knew there were people that, when I presented themselves, they just knew me as law enforcement, as a detective. But once they got to know me, they understood where I was coming from. I was, I was approaching it from a, a good place, and whatever thoughts they had of previous encounters that were negative, I, I understood. I mean, if it, if I knew they legitimately got harmed or screwed over, I'm like, hey, I'm the first one to acknowledge that uh, we, uh, I, I work with some phenomenal people out of Saints. And I worked with some people that I wouldn't trust them alone in the room with my girl. I mean, uh, you know, it's just a, it's a, it's a organization filled with humans. So you've got 10% out of Saints and the 10% that a Satan and then everyone else is in between that kind of swims in the middle and does what they have to do. And, and it's just average ordinary folks. So what other people think of me, you know, if they think I'm great, oh, well, great. Oh, fantastic. If they don't, you know, give me a chance to prove you wrong. And if you still think, um, just because of what I do, you know, defines me, you know, we'll uh, agree to disagree and we move on. And I just try to find the commonalities of people. There's so many, we have way more in common than we have not in common. And that's just like, one little strike, and then I'll show you. I have you know twenty other positives that we'll agree upon. So I try not to look at the differences and just find the commonalities. Well, one thing that that what you're saying makes me think of is that from your perspective, I suspect that the reaction to the negative or that the painting of the police with a with a very wide brush, right, seems imbalanced, seems not representative of the numbers. That for every thousand you know cops who have a million things to be proud of, there's someone who's done something truly atrocious. Mm -hmm. That probably seems unfair, but something I would ask you about, do you think that maybe that disproportionate reaction or that inaccurate perception comes from the fact that you do a job that is capable of exercising a great deal of power over people that virtually no other career does? In other words, you know, an asshole who runs a pizzeria or a movie theater or drives an Uber is a lot less intimidating to me or inhibiting to me than an asshole police officer. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's our constitution was based on revolting, a rebellion from illegal search and seizure, the constitution of a freedom of assembly and the freedom of speech. So if you have someone, you encounter someone that's depriving you of those rights, I mean, that's uh, that's the core of uh, our U.S. citizens and what we believe in. And if you have someone doing the opposite of that, it's natural to have a pushback. So I get that. We're 
with the most visible form of government. And people that are in certain neighborhoods might encounter us more than people in uh, neighborhoods like you and I probably live in, in South Bay and Orange County, where you're just going through your normal normal existence of, you know, going to work to and from, and you're not in a densely packed, uh, you know, housing project or what have you with a, a lot of time on your hands and that you might be targeted uh, due to the way you look or where you live due to it's, since it's a high crime area, so... I understand where people are coming from when they're dissatisfied with us and paint us in a certain light. And, you know, it's based on facts and there's it's a lot of validity to it. The only thing I could do is do the best I can every day out in the street, acknowledge that past and those facts and try to change that person's opinion and show them that where myself and the people that I'm working with in my immediate grasp that I'm in charge of, that we're, we're not that and uh, we can do better. And um, that's one of the core values of my my department is uh, quality through continuous improvement. So every day is a chance when I interact with someone to improve their improve their um, their view of law enforcement. So I can I can only be responsible for for myself and the guys around me. It's interesting. This plays into what I hope will take up a large part of the second part of this interview. I'm going to circle back to something else that just has to do with your career timeline before we start really biting into some of the things that you just said. And that is, I was wondering, was it easier earlier on? And then with advancement, do hairier assignments lead to a different, a, a bigger load psychologically and maybe a heavier sense of responsibility? Or is police work police work? And from day one, it's kind of a heavy gig. Whew, that's a good question. I'm trying to think back from, you know, 20, I mean, I've been doing this for, you know, almost uh, three decades now. And um, I think just as time goes on, you, you learn how to get more comfortable in your skin and you know, humans, we see, we just do things through repetitions. You know, it's like weightlifting. The more you, more you rep to get in, the easier it is. So, in the twenty, in your twenties, and probably by the fifty year of your career, you start up slowly. You know, you think you have a good grasp of things, and then you get year ten, and then you're like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm ready for anything. And then, kind of by year fifteen, you start questioning, like, wow, was I everything I was doing in my fifth and tenth year? Mark, was that I doing it right? Or maybe I could do it better. Or, you know, times are starting to change within that decade. Let me refine some things. So for myself personally, I, I just find myself on a, a quest of always improving. I I, I think I'm a, a good cop with a lot to learn still. I, I, I never stop learning. I try to be, think of myself as a lifetime student and teacher, trying to give back to the organization and uh, the people I'm with, you know, by uh, letting them learn from the example things I've done in the past that were right and wrong, and then at the same time try to learn from others. So, yeah, that's kind of a long answer to. Uh, I no. think <laughs> you and I, you and I decide the length of this thing, so we're good. <laughs> Have you had to bury a lot of people that you worked with? And and you know, if so, does that ever you ever act on that? Yeah, it was a lot due to uh, a good amount, I would say, to suicide. Really, and then. Yeah, that's that was more suicide than line of duty deaths, and uh, you know, but a death is a death, no matter what the way it, you know, whatever the form comes. And then uh, post September 11th, going to a lot of the funerals and having to see comrades and the or family members buried due to that. That was that was really heavy. Were you in LA on September 11th? No, I was working at YPD back then. I would open up on the on the day we'd have like maybe. One one day a week off, and sometimes two every now and then. The day off was never a day off because I would just open the newspaper. It was really bizarre. They would have all the funerals uh, throughout 
as time went on of everyone who uh, perished in the World Trade Center. And uh, I just kind of look in the paper and, and then pick someone and then go to a funeral. So it was kind of like an extension of work in a way. It was that throw the uniform on. So that was that was kind of that was pretty heavy stuff. So, yeah, yeah, I never thought of that. There's like some professions where, you know, just people don't, you know, friends don't die. Comrades don't die, thankfully. And I've had that. So, yeah, that is uh, it's an interesting aspect to think about. Now I'm speaking about it. Your norm is not a common norm, sir. No. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Let's get into the last couple of years, conditions over the last couple of years. And I sort of mean political climate, relationship of the police to maybe the public at large or maybe specific portions of the public. And one thing, just, you know, visibility between you and I, is I thought about how to have this conversation responsibly and how to have this conversation as a listener and not try to be overly editorial with it. So places of questions and things that come from that standpoint, but I, I, I kind of already know that you will, but I please want you to be uninhibited in sharing your perception. That's the only way I know. <laughs> okay, cool. For better or worse. All right. Well, I mean, besides... Coronavirus, the last couple of years, have been largely defined by protest in the streets. Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, influence stuff. The B, a lot of people refer to it as the BLM era. Sure. Has that been more difficult than life as usual in your job? It's. I would say it's been a. It's been a challenge. I mean, it's a. It's a paradigm shift that's uh, definitely upended my professional or the world, I should say, and. You know, I think I think a lot of things are cyclical. So we're in that social change. Yeah, you know, I was alive back then, but from what I've read, student of history of like you know, late '60s, early '70s, you know, the social revolution that was going on around the world that was influenced by the U.S. and then it moved overseas. Um, I think it propelled us as a better society. Ultimately, it's just painful getting there. It's like starting up a a new workout regime. You haven't worked out in two or three years. Now you're going to work out. And that beginning part is super painful, but it's going to push you into a, a good, positive space. So I think we're still working out the kinks of the the harm, not harmful, but uh, uncomfortable portion of where we need to be in society. So it has to be done in order to for the human race to evolve. We're, we're constantly evolving to, you know, get bigger, better, stronger, faster, smarter. So I, for myself, I just see it as a as a challenge. I see it as a good thing. So I was going to say it, you got there before I asked you, but that almost sounds like in a very complex, very thought out way, you're suggesting that Black Lives Matter is a positive. Yeah, I mean, I, I liked what, you know, where, where it came from organically. Mm-hmm. I understood exactly. I didn't, I didn't get mad at it. It's kind of uh, unsettling to see how, you know, any organization that's, you know, that's a bunch of humans. Someone's going to find a way to make money from it. Someone's going to find it as a side hustle. And then the guy gets kind of corrupted. And which is kind of a bummer, you know, I think it started out with with good intentions. And then as it got bigger and bigger, different people got involved in it and uh, it put a bad name to it. So but I think just the concept, you don't have to, you know, we, we get obsessed with organizations itself. But just, the, you know, the thought of it, I thought it was a good thing of, hey, these people are being marginalized. That's uh, not getting enough attention and resources. And uh, let's do better. I mean, just keep it simple and go from there. So. Did you find that during the during that era when the really the demonstrations in the street were common that people's ears were a little more ears were maybe a little more close to you than usual? Ears close to me. I, yeah, there were, I mean there's a lot of there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of rage, there's a lot of like I said disenfranchised people, there's a lot of 
unstable communities and uh, we're thrust right in the middle of it. And they don't know me. They just see who I represent, you know, my, the shield on my uniform, the, you know, the patch. So I don't take it personal. You know, they, they're yelling at the institution. They don't know who I am. And mm-hmm. if I, I would just try to make a, I try to connect with at least one person that night or whatever during the riots. And it's like, if I can connect with one person or help them out when they got arrested, it's like, hey, you're under arrest, but uh, you don't have to be a dick about it. I could you know, look out for you and say, hey, I understand what you're doing. You know, hey, if I was 18 years old, 16 years old, I'd probably be same thing in the streets, kicking up dust and, and breaking windows. I'm, I'm not going to lie. You know, I've done a lot of dumb things as a kid. So I understand. So I just try to put myself in their shoes and see the world from their view and then just try to make it a, a decent experience if, if possible. So I, I think you can get your job done and just put your ego aside and just, like I said, just try to be kind, you know, but at the same time, <laughs> you step, step to me and my buddies and try to hurt us, you know, you're going to get your world rocked. That's just the bottom line. But once you're done, I'll scrape you off and give you first aid, shake your hand. And, uh, and then we could be friends after that. It's all good. That seems to me like a reflexive, position it would be impossible not to develop it seems to me very human i do not share it but i can analyze it pretty easily you know mm-hmm. i was doing research on this when i knew we'd be dis- discussing these and i was thinking about the perception versus reality and my friend jeff brought up the whole ratio of you know good cops to bad cops and this and that and i started to realize the makeup of the police department in the country and i, I went to a few different sources to get this right but these appear to be the median stats the police officers in America, are 83% of them are male, okay? That mm-hmm. 65% of them are white, and that the average age is 40 years old. Just in okay. terms of perception and the way class is laid out historically in this com- country, you're going to be fighting an uphill battle to be thought of as anything other than a dominating force. You, know, you think that's reasonable? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's uh, what this country, I mean, it's what this country was built on was uh, male whites and mm-hmm. uh you know, that's what we got to deal with. That's the feeding pool right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's changing as the, the country's demographics change. So reception versus reality. I mean, yeah, that's that. Those are the facts, right? No, those are the facts. And I don't I don't hang them on a police officer uh, because I do not think that you populate the, the force for the nation. But is that is that something that you see evolving? It definitely has been, you know, like traditionally, you know, even though it's white, you know, the vast majority of police department, uh, you know, especially in L.A. and in New York City, where I'm particularly uh, that I know of factually, it was uh, it was largely fueled by uh, immigrants, uh, an immigrant population. So whether it's immigrants of Italians, immigrants of Irish, Polish, Mexican out here, it was always it was always blue collar kids for the most part. In New York, it goes clear back to Nina, right? There's no Irish need apply for almost any other kind of work. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So it's it's been yeah it's been you know middle to lower class kids and as that demographic changes and we get the influx of uh, of the new um, people coming from overseas and that has been changing in the New York City Police Department and uh, Los Angeles Police Department so that's a, it's a interesting things as that that perception changes but then it's funny when you you tell I've seen it on Twitter which is like an alternate universe <laughs> with a Sure. That people love to, uh, you know, throw out their version of facts. But when you present like actual numbers, uh, like in particular with uh, LAPD, when you tell people that it's actually a majority minority police department right now, 
it rocks the world. They don't get it. But then they they'll take it and say, well, that there's still uh, there's still part of uh, the the systemic racism and everything else they'll throw at you. They're like no no matter what, you can't win. No matter who's in charge of the police department, oh, they're brainwashed or this and that. And uh, so you just got to you know shrug your shoulders and just move on. I don't know. This the whole th- obsession with race thing is um, it's an interesting thing that's going on. And I, I just wish uh, I wish it wasn't as a, a big divider as it is in this country. I think we got bigger problems than that going on that uh, that we have to look for and that we have to look at right now. I mean, it's, it's definitely a problem, but I think we could solve that. And it, it is little by little. I don't necessarily think you're wrong. Um, I do think doing this interview, having the opportunity to talk to you and doing it in the year that we're doing it. If I were to look back 10 years from now and not have brought up rates, I'd be kicking. Sure. You know, it just doesn't seem like a realistic thing to avoid in this conversation. I got really caught up a couple of years ago and wrote some songs about sort of the militarization of the police force. This was during the riots in Missouri and everything else. Sort of looking at a lot of police forces, particularly in you know, middle American states, buying up military surplus. I don't expect you to have an opinion on that. I don't expect you to have influenced that practice. But it made me think about something I heard in another podcast in a comparison I'd, I'd appreciate if you could share with the listeners. Which is, you said, it's very different policing in New York and policing in California by virtue of sort of resources versus method methodology. In other words, what's available to you on one coast, what's necessary on the other coast are two very different things. You kind of know what I'm what I'm referring to? Like styles, like styles of policing? Yeah, I, I heard you literally say that you have to do, a, I think, a lot more by doing or by force when you have smaller numbers and when you have less money available to you. And that that was illustrated sure. by, by working on the opposite coasts. Sure. I mean, that, that's a big issue right now is uh, uh, police hiring and retention and recruitment. I think the more police you have available on the street, uh, kind of a, it's like NYPD versus LAPD. It's what I know is LAPD was more, it's gotten away from it a lot, but it was more the officer to citizen ratio was, uh, the gap was huge. So they had to rule the streets by intimidation, force and being proactive. And in New York City, it was the complete opposite. They had more people out there, more resources. So they didn't have to put the clamp down on people uh, like they did out here. It's kind of like um, the father that's divorced. He has to be super nice on the weekends to the kid. And uh, if he was just there every day, he just could be a regular dad. And he doesn't have to be overbearing with his love, like, you know, pouring out, you know, let's do this, let's do that, giving him ice cream. Like, no, if, if you're there every day, you could just be a regular dad. If you're not there every day, you got to be abnormal in some type of way. So if you have enough police on the street, you know, uh, people are comfortable with you. You're comfortable with them. You don't have to rule by force and fear, which I think that's that's the wrong way to go about doing things. So but that's what it was just, you know, the mother of necessity. I had to go out um, in L.A. They had to go out there and be proactive and shake the bushes to put that fear into people where, hey, we're not out here all the time, but we're going to be looking for you. And if you're doing something wrong, we're going to. We're going to bring it and um, right or wrong, it got things done. But then you look at the effect it has. The relations were horrendous out in the streets. And uh, it, uh, just, you know, it really turned a lot of people off and a lot of communities got the short end of that stick, literally, and uh, wasn't the best thing. So I think the best way is just being present, having more people out there and solving, solving issues where you don't have to uh, come down with an iron fist. When I told some people I was going to be doing this interview, it was interesting. You know, one friend of mine uh, from Texas immediately was able to pick you out by name and by description from the net, from the Netflix series. 
from the, from, from the crime scene, the, the vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. I'm not going to ask you about that, although I know it was a big hit and I watched it. And I, was, I, got to do the, I got to do the, hey, I know that dude thing. But what I was thinking is you're media friendly. In other words, you've been on camera, you know, for, you've been a resource for things like that. You do a fair number of podcasts. You have a podcast of your own and you are talking to me now. And in my case in particular, you're talking to a dirty leftist punker. Um, <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, is there a sensitivity in your job? Is there, is there a set, strict set of parameters? Is there a, a heightened sensitivity to sharing your opinions in spaces like this? Or is it just natural where you stand and your perspective is not a threat to the job? You know, it's, I just, it, it's, it seems to me trippy how, how free you are with your speech. And I'm sort of curious how that works. You know what? It's it's really not something that's um, that's uh, condoned or encouraged. You know, yeah. it's never if someone does something in my profession does something retires from the job and does something bad fifty years down the road. It's not just you know uh, you know Jim McSorley uh, committed whatever crime. It's like retired cop, ex cop does X Y Z. So you're always the face of the organization. So since we do have a lot of rebels and some wild men out there. Talking to the press and uh, talking on podcasts is definitely not encouraged, but uh, I've been able to successfully navigate those field. I say I can't talk for my agency per se. You know, mm -hmm. I can just I'm, a, I'm only allowed to say that I'm a you know police detective in Los Angeles, and you figure out the rest. Mm -hmm. And uh, but I've um, I guess you know my opinions or whatever, and um, you know where I come from. I, I always try to come from a, a place of love, a place of compassion, and a place of learning. So. I'm not going to talk about wild, crazy shit, you know, conspiracy theories or whatever stuff that's going to bring negative attention to my agency. But for, you know, there are some guys that will talk crazy. And that's why we have these rules in our organization, uh, because they, uh, no matter what, it'll, 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 they're speaking on behalf of, um, of law enforcement. So there you go. I mean, there was, uh, there was some guys at the January 6th uh, caper that went down. So, I got a lot of press of just just being there. You're not even within the riot itself, just being present at a demonstration. You know, whatever it is, whatever you want to label it, but uh, whatever whatever your opinion is on it, just standing on that ground and doing absolutely nothing, you're immediately a target. So you lose your rights when you join the police department of speech, being present at certain activities, associations with people. You can't associate with um, ex-cons. Could have been someone that committed one crime 50 years ago and now they're a priest you can't associate with that person so. that's interesting to me i always pictured there being police sort of reformation case relationships i guess not i know i know it's a, it's a really... television lied to me <laughs> yeah. it's an interesting profession where you're given a lot of freedom or a lot of power but then a lot of tap power is taken back from you okay so well, I will. I want you to know that I thank you for a very forthcoming conversation. I couldn't help but have anxiety about this, even though we know each other, because they just seem to me like difficult things <laughs> to talk about. No, both the experiences and the and the perspectives regarding sort of certain hot button things. I promised a friend of mine I would ask you this: McSorley's Ale House on the East Side in New York. Is there yes. any family connection, or is it just a beloved institution? Uh, way back when there was, but it was sold by uh, it was sold by the McSorleys to a, a great, great family, uh, the Mars, who I'm very, uh, very close with, and uh, great, great people, fabulous uh, institution. Have you been? 
no. And he was sort of making fun of me for that because I've both been to New York and I'm a, you know, I'm a publican. I run bars. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But so you are, though, you are, you are those McSarlins, huh? Mm-hmm. I'm glad I asked. Yep. It's, it's, yeah, that everyone's from Derry. So it's a real small clan. And, uh, of course, you know, it's like every Irishman has, you know, a couple of dreams, right? It's to own a bar, uh-huh. you know, write a book. Check. Check. And, um, what else? Is there anything else? No, right? So you got two at you got two out of two. So you're living out you're living out dream, my man. Okay, and you, and you go. got records. There so, it is. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, Nako, this was fun. This was edifying. This was everything I hoped it would be. So thank you very much. No, no, thank you. Pleasure's mine. And uh, I, I look up to you as a outspoken person. Your literature is bar none, your music has been inspiring. So I just loved, I love, love your work. And I'm, you know, I hope you have a lot more in the can and um, get out, get back out there live and start putting out some records, my man. We doing my best, there. sir. I'm doing, I'm doing my best. <laughs> All right. well, listen, everybody, that is episode 51 of Dano Says So. Take care. Well, hey, friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Again.